This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we are doing a continuation deep dive from an original podcast with Sean Hutchinson from SVA, Value Accelerator Methodology. And we're going to go through the financial accelerator component. Good enough. Sean, take your way. <laughs> okay. So the financial accelerator in our in our value accelerator, which consists of, as we talked about in the original podcast, discovery plus seven 90-day sprints. We're talking about a two-year project, is number seven. Why do we put financial accelerator at the end of the process would be, that's a relevant question, right? But we have to know, because we've gone through decision-making and culture, and we've been through risk reduction and productivity and company of the future and sales and marketing at this point, what we're trying to figure out in the financial accelerator is how to fund it all, how to efficiently fund it all at the lowest cost of capital possible. So often the financial strategy in the organization is not aligned with what it is attempting to accomplish, and it doesn't actually contribute ultimately to the operational metrics that matter. So you can have a really good foundation of strategy, a really good operational foundation, a really good productive, efficient process. But if the financing strategy is not line up with it, you keep running into these sort of blockades that ultimately are not going to serve you. Financial acceleration is also, importantly, about creating shareholder value for the owners. So ultimately, when we talk about value creation or value acceleration, what we're really doing is accelerating shareholder value. And we're creating transferability options for the owner that they did not have before. So when you say transferability options, what that means is if we have a buyer out there and the business owner wants to sell. Absolutely. That would be an example of an outside transfer. But also the business really has to be able to transfer also to the inside if that's the way it's going to go. Employee ownership, management ownership, partnership transfer, family. Right. So those are the four inside options. The outside options are sell to a third party, recapitalize the business, which brings in a partner that takes part of the ownership or liquidate. Mm -hmm. Right. Orderly, we hope. But liquidation is a possibility. So when I'm talking about transferable value, I am talking about being able to efficiently transfer the ownership of the business at the highest value possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Most businesses, when we start working with them, are not transferable at all. So if you put a value on the business, it's probably more of a fair market value or an IRS tax value than it is a market, mm -hmm. a true market representation, right? So our position is if nobody would buy your business and particularly Mr. Owner or Mrs. Owner, if you would look at your business from the outside and say, I don't think I would buy that business, then it has zero value. Mm -hmm. Now, the IRS is happy to put a value on it, right? They're happy to do that, especially within your estate. They got their own valuation thing. And even if yours is not transferable, they're going to say that it has value and they're going to tax you on it. So we are always talking about transferability and value in our work because we think that that's the acid test. Will it transfer from one part to the other efficiently at the highest value possible? Kind of litmus test, right? So financial acceleration is a big part of that. There are lots of aspects, I think, of financial acceleration that we could take into account, but really there are two that we want to look at in our financial accelerator that we think matter the most in this particular context. One is determining the true cost of capital for the organization. Cost of capital is critical, 
As you know, part of the reason that public companies can continue to grow and become more and more valuable as they go, part of the reason is because they have access to very low cost capital, which puts a lot of juice in the equity because they get a lot of leverage on the equity, which means that people that are putting the equity in get a higher return. That's the way the math works, right? So private businesses do not have access to low cost capital. Many private businesses really aren't totally bankable. They might be able to get a line of credit. They might be able to get an equipment loan of some sort, like an asset back loan, but it's hard to get the amount of financing that they need to really reach their goals. When you go through this process with the business owner and you've gone through all the steps and you've gone through the financial accelerator portion, mm -hmm. when that owner talks to a lending institution, does that change the behavior of the lending institution? Absolutely. And there are a couple of pieces of that. One, we have a better story to tell. Mm -hmm. That's important. So the relationship between the owner and their bank, honestly, has got to be healthy and the trust in that relationship will be based partly on, in most cases, how trustworthy the owner is to some degree, whether they can financially guarantee the debt. But it's also about the story. Good bankers, and there aren't that many of them, unfortunately. You know, the old style of banking was to actually get to know your customer. The bank gave you time to do it. You had a smaller portfolio of customers. You really went out, you learned their story, and your goal as a banker was to help the owner get from where they were to where they wanted to be. And that was the role of the bank. Now, not so much. Commercial bankers are loaded up with 200 customers. They probably have time to check in for 10 minutes, you know, twice a year. And there's all kinds of other pressures on them to develop new business rather than deal with the existing customers. So the system has changed so much that the relationship between businesses and their bankers or owners and their banker has, I think, deteriorated, which is a problem. Because we always tell our clients that in order to lower the cost of capital, you actually have to get lower cost capital. And that means your banker is your best friend. Because the cost of equity is always higher, including, by the way, the money that the owner because they don't want to use bank debt, maybe, because they're resistant to it. And a lot of owners are. They don't want a whole lot of debt on their balance sheet. But then they turn around and kind of loan themselves their own money on an after-tax basis, in many cases. And then the expectation of the return has got to be, you know, 12, 15%. When I ask owners, what do they want to get back for their money, for their investment, because they're in private business and it is high risk in many cases, they'll tell me 15% seems like a good number. That would be kind of my minimum. Well, every time they put a dollar back into the company, the expectation is that dollar is going to produce 15%, said or otherwise, mm -hmm. right? So then the business has to generate 15% return on that dollar. Plus, it has to generate additional cash to grow. So there really isn't any leverage in that financial strategy, except the owner takes more risk. By putting their own dollar back in, it's been devalued by tax already, tax and inflation. So they're putting it back into the company. And in my view, they would be better off creating a financial environment that the bank can say, we can get behind that story and we're going to do it at three and a half percent. Now the company has significant liquidity. Yeah, the balance sheet's going to look different. Yeah, there's going to be a payment that's going to be made, right? Off the income statement. Yes, those things are going to be there. But from a capital structuring standpoint, from a financial management standpoint, the company that uses debt judiciously and at the right cost is long-term going to be a much better company. 
most private businesses, I think, are under leveraged. I think they're just under leveraged. I don't see very many that are over leveraged. Honestly, I've seen a few in my career that just borrowed way too much money. And maybe the more serious cases were not just borrowed too much money, but borrowed it for the wrong reasons. So now they're in kind of, you know, double trouble. But businesses who use debt for the right reasons, with the right goals in mind, and establish financial systems that can track the value of that investment over time, which we would call, in a very technical term, economic value analysis, which folks that are in our industry or in the financial industry are going to understand right off. But, you know, to put it in simple terms, what are the activities within your company that are creating economic value and which ones don't? That's what it comes down to. And economic value is very simply, did it produce a return in excess of the cost of capital? Got to make the spread. Got to make the spread. Exactly. So I think everybody kind of instinctively understands when you lay out that case, yeah, I need cheaper capital in my company. That begs the question, is the balance sheet structured in a way, both now and proactively into the future, aligned with your strategy? If you say, hey, here we are in point A, and we're going to use capital to move to point B. And this is the strategy that we have, the financial strategy we have to fund that movement. Our balance sheet and our income statement look like this. And by the time we get to B, they're going to look like this. If they don't look like that, we might not be able to fund B to C, right? But we know we've projected that they should end up looking at B like this. And if they do, then we're going to be able to fund B to C. And at C, they're going to look like this. And that'll get us to D, right? So again, much like we were talking about in the company of the future discussion, incremental financial management, that sequencing of we're going from A to B, we have to be able to fund it. It's not going to happen by accident. We need a clear strategy and we need to do it at the lowest cost of capital possible. So that's step one. That takes looking at the balance sheet history, current balance sheet, future balance sheet. Let me just mention that We've worked with a lot of owners and their financial teams that honestly do not look at their balance sheets very much. It's interesting. They spend a lot of time on the income statement, and I can understand that. So profit and loss, man, they're really focused on that, and rightly so. But the balance sheet and the cash flow statement, there is some attention to the cash flow statement, but cash flow analysis sometimes is a little more complex than owners would like. At the end of the day, it's how much did I pay out, how much did I bring in, right? We don't really need the, you know, the sort of gap cash flow statement doesn't always resonate. And I get that. The balance sheet, however, if someone asked me to look at the financial health of a business or to begin to estimate the value of a business or the value potential of a business, the first thing that I will ask for is the balance sheet and I will not ask for the income statement yet. I can tell them right off the bat with a little digging whether the business is healthy enough to actually increase its value in the future. Just by looking at historical balance sheets, And the balance sheet tells a story about the business that I think is incredibly powerful. Unfortunately, I think it's an underutilized tool. A lot of times the financial staff who are in many cases really capable look at the balance sheet a lot, but there are other people in the organization that need to see it and understand it. Mm -hmm. I would argue in financial acceleration for financial transparency. Now, that's a controversial subject, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I think in general, transparency of any kind in a business actually helps increase its value because it is a 
community activity, right? Everybody in the organization has got to be enrolled in the idea of creating more value. Wherever they fit in that process, in that sequence, they're getting involved in creating more value. Creating more value can be interpreted, I think, very narrowly as putting more money in the pocket of the owner. I actually don't think that's what it is. I think that value acceleration is about creating shareholder value, but it's also about creating whole company opportunity. We like wealth. Wealth creates opportunity. Wealth in a business helps everybody. Creates achieve. opportunity for advancement, creates job security, <laughs> creates benefits, creates... Absolutely. Yes. If we have money, we can do more. Yes. Right? So... We need to be attuned to the financial needs of the organization, aligned it with the strategy. And then I think there needs to be a certain level of financial transparency within the organization. Because I can tell you, I think organizations that are transparent outperform their peers who aren't. And that's because one, the owner and executive team have shown a lot of trust in people to, first of all, engage with the financials, learn to understand them, understand their contribution to them and why it's important. And also just think about how money works in an organization and how important it is, right? The next time you ask for 50000 to go out and do that or you know, whatever you want to do, buy a new piece of equipment, how does that contribute to the long-term economic viability and wealth of the company? If you're not involved in that conversation or invited to that conversation, it's just not going to be on the table for you. Mm -hmm. So the trust factor is one thing. And then I think the knowledge factor and the ability to understand action and how it relates to money is a big advantage that ultimately, I think, converts into a financial advantage, right? Think about public companies. Private owners get really nervous about people actually knowing about their financials, right? You don't have to show everybody everything. We're not saying show every salary or something like that. It doesn't matter. I think they need to know the basics underlying. But if you think about a public company, it's all there. Every employee working Stock in a public company, everything. Everything. They can go read the 10Q, read the K, you know, whatever they want is there. And yet the companies don't fall apart. They don't fall apart. I actually think that they're probably better off with that level of transparency because people have access to the information that they may need in order to do a better job to understand where their place might be. So I advocate for financial transparency as well as operational transparency. The other part of our financial accelerator that I probably in the most proud of, I guess I would say, is what we call feed-starve analysis. I'm going to need to get a little bit visual here. I'll try to explain it in a way, and I know that we'll probably be able to throw a slide up at some point, right, so people can see it. Let me put it this way. If you think about your company as a set of tiles, each tile representing something that you do, something that you sell, division, however you would divide your company up into discrete activities, places, things, right? So let's call those economic activities. Let's say that you put all of those up on the wall and they form a mosaic. Some of those tiles are going to be differently shaped and bigger, smaller, whatever it may be. So it's going to turn out like a mosaic to be just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff, all interrelated. If I go to an owner and I say, all right, I can tell you from experience that if you put 20 tiles up on the wall, five of them are going to be adding economic value and 15 are probably either going to be neutral or taking it away, right? Tell me which are the five that are adding. And unless they have really sophisticated financial analytics in some cases and a deep understanding of 
money traces through an organization in particular ways according to what it does, they are not going to be able to answer that question. And as a shareholder or a leader of an organization, that is a very uncomfortable place to be because you don't know what to feed and you don't know what to start. Well, you'd feel stupid about putting money in a division that doesn't do anything. Yeah, you if would. If you didn't know. If you didn't. That's right. If you knew about it and consciously continued to fund it. That'd be malfeasance. And remember, when we yeah. talk about leadership, the essence of leadership is knowing what not to do mm -hmm. or deciding what not to do. So the same principle applies. Feed, starve. In one of our other sprints earlier, we introduced this in our rapid risk reduction and productivity sprints. It is a framework for deciding what to say no to and what to continue to support or even ramp up support for financially. So visually, this looks like a bar graph. Okay, so up the left-hand side is return on equity. This is a shareholder measure, right? On the bottom side is the total capital base of the company representing all of the things that it does. How much money does it actually need to fund its operations every second, right? What's tied up? So at some point on that bar chart is going to be a dotted line that goes from left to right, and that is going to represent the minimum return on equity that the owner expects to get for their dollar, right? So now imagine that the company does eight things. And so there are eight bars, right, on the bar chart. Let's start on the left with our highest value activity. The ones we like are tall and thin. Why? Because tall means they've exceeded that dotted line, the return on equity. They're very efficient also because they're skinny. That means they're not using very much capital. When less capital is used, it's highly scalable activity. It doesn't require a whole lot of reinvestment, which means it's very efficient. and you can do more of those things with less capital, right? So if you want to expand that, you don't have to put millions and millions of dollars into it. You can just incrementally continue to drive that up. So tall and skinny is great. Out of eight, maybe you have two or three that are, you know, one that exceeds that. You're looking at the chart going, I want more of that, right? Mm -hmm. Number two, maybe still above the dotted line. Great. We like that. Number three, just exceeding or just not quite hitting the, what are we going to do about that, right? Are we going, if it's just below the dotted line, are we going to feed it or are we going to starve it? The challenge to the team would be, I think we're going to feed it, but you guys have to figure out how to make it get above that dotted line by a good way. So now we're going to set it skinnier. and make it skinnier, make it more efficient and drive the return up. I love the fact that it just, it gets real at that point for me because you can't escape the financial results. Whatever they are, they are. They're either bad, good or otherwise, but now you're getting into interesting conversations that benefit the shareholder or shareholders, but also ultimately create wealth within the company. Now, let's talk about the ones that are marginal, right? So let's say four, five, and six are below the dotted line. But in looking at those activities and analyzing them, you see some life in number six. Even though it's underperforming right now, because you've done the strategy work and because you've done the productivity work, you can look at that one and you can say, all right, it's aligned with what we believe is our long-term company of the future, right? And we believe because we've, as we've talked about before, because we have agile strategy, we think we can take number six and turn it into a winner and we can do it within a year. And here's our 90-day agile strategy plan, right? And we've identified success factors, we've identified risks, got our resources lined up, we can take that one and make it a winner. Five, marginal. Maybe it's not underperforming, 
we don't know how to cover the white space between the top of that bar and the dotted line. Quite frankly, it's probably going to take a lot of work, and I don't know that we can really ever push it to where we want to be. So now somebody's got to have a conversation about that. Are we going to starve it or feed it? In those discussions, it should be apparent that it needs to be starved. And what does that mean to the organization? Starved or sold, which is a form of starving. Might as well make money off an underperforming activity. So there are implications to starving. Of course, people may lose their jobs. However, if the organization is attuned to talent and workforce management, you never want to lose talented people. Mm -hmm. You always want to have created a culture, an environment in which you could reposition them relatively easily. So what you want to do is shut down that activity and move the capital that it was consuming over into the higher return activities. Move the people there too. And move the people there, right? Because you're going to need the people there, most likely. Or you say, we're going to shut that down, but we've got a new idea, right? We're going to go buy a company, and then we're going to take that company, and we're going to blow the lid off, and we're going to need some good people in order to do that. So what that's creating is a more efficient capital base. It's allowing you to invest your money where it's most effective for the shareholders. Now, if you got a really short, fat one, right? So these are interesting. Here's the story that I see a lot. The short, fat, sort of grotesque underperformers just seem to be a majority of the time the thing that the owner considers to be the heart and soul of the company. Sacred cow. The sacred cow, or it's the reason the company was started. Yeah, it's what my daddy did. That's right. Yeah. And it's just a value sucker. Mm -hmm. It's killing value in the company. Because no matter how many high return activities you get, If you got this sucker over here that's just sucking the life out of the company, but it's also creating negative conversations and negative culture because everybody knows it's a loser. Nobody wants to be associated with it. And the leadership perception in the organization is being negatively impacted because everybody's looking at that and looking at the owner or the CEO and saying, why are we still doing that? I don't understand why that's even a part of this conversation. And so leadership looks like they're failing the test of the essence is knowing what not to do. So FeedStarve is a pretty complex financial analytical process because most companies don't actually understand in the beginning what capital they are investing in each activity. Part of it is defining the economic activities. And there are lots of ways you can do it. Is it each product? Is it a division? Is it a market? Is it a set of customers? Whatever that might be look like trying to understand the the current situation is really about understanding where the company is moving in the future, because it doesn't really matter how you analyze that as long as it's aligned with and applicable to where you're headed in the future. That's really what you want, right? Alignment between those two things. So the power of the financial accelerator, three things, right, that we've talked about. We've talked about financial transparency, which begs the question of financial education. I don't think you should ever give information to anybody who doesn't understand it or seek to understand it. So you need to work both of those things if transparency is going to work. Then we've got lowering the cost of capital, which is really about understanding balance sheet, income statement, cash flow together, but also aligning that restructuring of the balance sheet with incremental steps along the way towards your company in the future so that it supports the strategy. And then the third thing is stop funding the things that are ripping economic value away from the shareholders. 
one of the realizations that comes out of that exercise is that you can have a profitable division that is producing negative returns. Again, another example of counterintuitive financial or value management. So it helps if a division is or an activity is a profit making activity. But if it's taking a lot of capital and barely producing profit or even a handsome profit, the relationship between the capital base and the profit is what either hits the dotted line or doesn't, right? So you got to reduce the capital exposure. Now, remember, I said it was return on equity. I didn't say it was return on investment. I said it was return on equity. That's that dotted line. So now we're talking about creating a capital base that is both equity and debt. If you've got a skinny, tall bar, right? Smaller amount of capital, bigger return. If you add debt to it, and that's an equity amount of capital. Well, if you have a skinny, tall bar, the question you have to ask is, do I have all of that market? Absolutely. And if I have all of that market, then you either have to go outside your market. That's right. You got to figure something else well, out. Well, you you might be feeding something that's just not going to go any further. Yeah, it's right? done all so you have to do. think about you that. So, yeah. so, you know, we can just run that until, it, mm-hmm. you know, we continue to maintain that it it's creating economic value. We don't want to lose it necessarily, but we don't want to put more into it. If it's not oh, yeah. I, I think about it, if 80% of the company is a fat wide column and 20% is a high performer, then you go do the math of 80% times what it, the poor performer is doing and 20% times and you go, it's overwhelming. There's almost nothing the 20% division can do. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And as you add debt to the capital base, which expands the amount of capital that you have at a lower cost, that tall, skinny one gets skinnier, yeah, right? Because you've added debt, now you have less equity at risk, and your return actually will increase. The return on equity will increase. In that particular case, financial acceleration is in part about reducing the financial exposure of the shareholders. For a company owner that has an accountant or CPA firm, that's their business. Would you buy it as it is today? Some owners might say, yeah, I'm in. Some owners... More often than not, I'm sorry to say in the conversations that I've had, say, no way, because it's not generating a sufficient return, financial return, to justify taking that amount of risk instead of putting my money somewhere else, right? That's another benchmark, right? In that financial return kind of profile, is the business really performing in a way that would attract an investor? And that's when it gets down to marketability and attractiveness. No matter how attractive you think your business is as an owner, the only judgment that really counts is somebody with a checkbook besides you. In thinking about that, we talked before the episode, and you have a methodology, Mm -hmm. value acceleration. That's right. Let's talk just a couple of minutes on that because, you know, for the listeners, we're going to do a deep dive series on value acceleration following this particular episode. That's right. But uh, let's to a bit of teaser, for lack of a better term, on what that's about. So we're talking about the pivoting category. The pivoters are the ones that really dive deep into value acceleration. So the Exit Planning Institute, which we talked about, created a value acceleration methodology, which generally breaks down into three parts. One is discover, second is implement, right? And the third is decide. You're going to keep it or you're going to sell it. One form or another, that's many different conversations. We took that methodology, which we embrace, and we added a lot of value to it. SVA does it completely differently than anybody else that works in this marketplace, as far as I know. I haven't been able to find 
any other corollary. So value acceleration takes a while. Most people will tell you that it takes at least three to five years of intensive work to make significant gains. And value tends to increase exponentially. It's not really a linear process. So the curve is going to look like we're starting value acceleration. We're going to get a few gains early in the process, and then we're going to kind of hit an inflection point. Boy, this thing is going to turn up. And there are lots of reasons why it might take that exponential curve, but you can track pretty accurately the data points, the factors that are beginning to add up to a company that can actually go exponential. So we started thinking about what are the things that must be present in order to be successful, but in and of themselves do not guarantee success, but they must be there. It won't happen without them, but it doesn't guarantee, it's not guaranteed if they're present. And then how many of those things would be necessary? How many of those skills, systems, whatever they might be, how many of those are there that can be chunked down into what we call 90-day sprints? And that's how we designed the program. That was what we call the design constraint. In our view, each one of these pieces of the value accelerator needs to have bookends on it. It needs to start, and then it needs to finish. And we think that 90 days of work makes a big difference if you're working on one thing during that period. And if the team can break off enough time and break off enough attention and really stay focused on that one thing, once we complete that, we can move on to the next. Our value accelerator is built so that what we do first supports what we do second. That builds into what we do third and fourth. So let me walk through those things. The first step is discovery. This is not due diligence, right? So due diligence is a list of stuff that you have to kind of check the boxes on in order to be able to successfully do a deal, right? And there's a lot of reason to do it because you can learn a lot about your company from doing due diligence. Discovery is different. Discovery is about accessing, asking the right questions, having the right conversations, and accessing what we would call enriched information about the company and all of the stakeholders in that company, whether it be the owner, their family, possibly management team and other key employees in the company. You have to pretty much enroll a pretty big group of people to do this. It's not just going to be the owner doing the work. So discovery is really important, usually takes 60 to 90 days. And what comes out of that is a whole set of information that we can synthesize and use throughout the value acceleration process, but also gives us that all important baseline. Where did we begin? What is in fact the current state? Think current state, future state all the time. That's the whole. And the bridge between the two is the value accelerator, point A to point B. Step one after discovery is decision dynamics. Now, this for me was a kind of an epiphany. There are two people in our company that do decision dynamics. There are three parts to decision dynamics. One, figure out what matters together. Two, learn to make better decisions faster. And three, manage with grace and accountability. So we believe that making better decisions faster is the basis for operational excellence. If you think about it, you can drive systems all day long. You can have lean manufacturing in place. I'm going to talk manufacturing for a minute. You can be industry 4.0. All of those things can be present. But if people can't make good decisions faster, none of that really can hold. So the, we felt like for all of the things that we're going to do in value acceleration after this, if people can make better decisions faster and figure out what matters together and then manage that with accountability, we don't have the right framework for making your progress in the future. So step one, decision dynamics. Step two, rapid risk reduction, right? So again, going back to the idea, 
that we need to get as much risk out of the company as we can in order to prepare the foundation for that exponential growth. Otherwise, you're just against the headwinds all the time. So there is a framework for risk reduction that we use. What we're trying to do is, I guess, install might be the right word, or at least embed maybe is a better word, risk-based thinking in the organization. Now, there are there are organizations that do risk-based thinking really well, but most do not. Most are opportunity-based cultures, understandably. However, risk can be classified, it can be scored, and then you can decide which ones you want to take out of the company, which ones you're willing to bear. And those are decisions that are really important because you will not be able to handle every risk that you find. Then the question is, again, figuring out which ones matter, making decisions well and fast, and then managing with accountability going forward. Let's make sure they're out of the company and not just hiding over there in the corner, ready to come back. The third one is company of the future. It's all about figuring out where we want to go and how we're going to get there. Again, it's a current state, future state exercise. There are tools that we use in that that I think are pretty unique. One is called the graphic game plan. The other one is called strategic doing. It's all about agile strategy. Again, without decision dynamics, without risk reduction, you wouldn't be able to do company of the future well. After that, productivity, right? So in private business where resources tend to be precious, where capital is not always available at a relatively low cost, here we are in the tightest talent marketplace in what decades, probably going back to maybe the 1950s. Right now, constraining growth, honestly. A lot of our construction clients, I lead the construction practice at SBA. Man, they've got great opportunity. They've got huge pipeline of work. Their backlog is very healthy. What they're doing is growing. They're getting pretty good margins on it. And they're out of people. They're just out of people. And for organizations that don't have productivity initiatives in place, which can be simply put as out of 100 steps, usually in companies, 95 of those 100 steps are completely unnecessary. Even when Toyota introduced Kaizen, right, the basis for lean, they took it from 95 unnecessary steps to 90 unnecessary steps and beat the world. So if you think about your company and all of the processes, if you map them out and you basically just started putting red X's through the ones that, as a matter of fact, they don't add value, right, which is did they change form, fit, or function? And is it something that the customer will pay for? If it doesn't fit those criteria, then it's not needed or it's just running against you. It's just cost. So by eliminating those steps, by doing value-added process mapping, we can actually identify what to take out of the company so that it can run on less with less people, right? Just a more efficient, productive approach. And we introduced something called the feed-starve analysis, which I won't go into now because it's pretty complex, but that's the first place that it shows up in the program and it's going to show up again in the financial accelerator. In those first four sprints, we have now laid the foundation for operational excellence and strategy. We know where we're going. We have a plan for how we're going to get there. And we know what our pathfinder milestones are along the way. And we become an agile organization that can implement strategy on a short cycle, 90 days at a time. There is no, well, you know, this is a three-year plan and all that. No. We can come up with a clear plan, but we're going to do it in 90-day cycles, and then we're going to adjust every 90 days to see where we are. I can't tell you how much that changes a business. It's really remarkable. 
We use it in our own business, as a matter of fact. Everything that we do in our value acceleration is something that we test in the lab of SVA and use. What a concept. Yeah, I know. Yeah, practice what you preach. After that, sales and marketing, now we're ready to grow, right? We put in place those things that are necessary for us to begin to make that exponential inflection. Next is sales and marketing. Most companies just don't have a sales process and really don't have a sales team. And one of the big risks that sucks value out of a company is owner reliance. So owner can't go on vacation because the company would fall apart or really suffer or owner wears four. If you do an organizational chart, the owner somehow shows up in six of those boxes or they have all the major customer relationships. They know things that the rest of the company probably wouldn't know if it happened to the owner. So documentation, knowledge management. So owner reliance is a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff packed into two words. And when we see it, we know that there's a whole catalog, a whole inventory of other risks that are going. If well, Once we take the box, the lid off that box, we're going to find a whole lot of stuff that isn't very pretty. So when we go to sales and marketing, one of the things that we're immediately going to look for is how many relationships are vested in the owner. And nobody likes to really talk about it, but you have to take the perspective that bad things happen to good people. And so the question is, do the doors shut if the owner dies or becomes, you know, substantially disabled and can no longer work? Or does it keep going like nothing happened? And what you want, obviously, is the second. In most cases, what you've got is some version of the first. Pretty typical. Succession planning now steps into the picture. Most businesses haven't done much, and there's a lot of work that goes into succession. Marketing is a mystery in most organizations. A lot of organizations think sales and marketing is the same thing. Marketability, the attractiveness of the company has to do in part with how it manages its conversation with the marketplace, how it positions, right? What it says about itself, what kinds of values it has, and how that's reflected in the way it operates and produces either a service or a product for its customers. So it is a promise. When you are marketing, you're making a promise. The question is, can you keep it? So we improve those things. Next, financial acceleration. The cost of capital for most private businesses is just too high. And to generate a return for a shareholder, mathematically, you must generate a return that is higher than your cost of equity, right? Cost you 10% on equity, better. You're going to have to do better than 10% to generate a return. The financial systems is not really our concern unless they're really bad. Some companies struggle to put a good, timely financial statement together. That can be fixed. I'm not so worried about that. What I'm worried about is financial strategy. If we have a strategy over here that we have to execute on in order to add value to the business, everybody's clear on that. If the financial strategy isn't aligned with that, if we can't get the cost of capital to a reasonable level, understand what we should be funding in the organization and what we shouldn't, that goes back to that feed-starve thing that I talked about. What are we going to feed? What are we going to starve? Then capital just sort of disperses through the organization in very inefficient ways. Without good financial analysis and strategy, it's hard to tell in a company what's working and what's not. That goes to management reporting, benchmarking, scoreboarding, all those kinds of things. So now we're getting into more of the nitty-gritty stuff, right? The last thing we do, which may be counterintuitive, but... And some people think it ought to be done first, is leadership, accelerating leadership in the organization. If we had tried to do it early in the process to try to get leaders ready, we wouldn't know, one, whether we were getting the right people ready. Two, they wouldn't have been aligned around anything. 
right? We just would have been talking leadership in a vacuum. So nobody would have had anything to sort of hang their hat on and say, we as a team, as leaders are going to do this and not that. The essence of leadership is knowing what not to do. So if you just got people kind of wandering around all over the place, becoming better leaders, but they're not aligned around something compelling and what we would call appreciative, we can go into that at some point. But if you can't attract those people to a vision and if somehow the vision is either uninteresting or just bad and it repels the best leaders, you have a problem, right? You have a real problem. So what we want to do is do the leadership accelerator last based on all the other work that we've done. So you can see in some value acceleration, it's over the next 90 days, we're going to do five business things and five personal things. You're definitely going to move the needle. In our value accelerator, it's really much different in terms of what we're doing with each 90-day period. And the sequencing is critical, in my view. At that point, we have a company that's going to look a lot different and operate a lot differently than we did in the beginning. But we, at the end of two years, would really like to exit stage left, honestly. Because what we want to build is a company that can exist independent of us. Certainly, that's part of our job. And again, we want to have been working for that period on the things that matter most to building value and creating opportunity for the owner and other people within the company. So that's the value accelerator in a nutshell. And so with that being said, this podcast could go on for days. <laughs> and so part of the reason we talked about value accelerator is one to give a broad brush. Yeah. Right? We're going to have additional drill down episodes. that are going to deep dive into each component. Mm-hmm. All right. That'll be coming after this. First order of business for the folks that are looking to reach out to you. How do they find you? First of all, through our website is fine. You can certainly, we're active on social media. My email address, we can. What's your website? Our website is www.buildvaluetoday.com. And you're on LinkedIn? On LinkedIn. All of our partners are on LinkedIn. We're and all active. Sean Hutchinson, S-E-A-N, Hutchinson with an N. That's not, right. Not right. Hutchison, but Hutchinson. Right. Yeah, and it's there's a P in there for my LinkedIn. So okay. Sean Patrick. Ah, yeah, I know, a little Irish, little, uh, just a little, just a little. <laughs> and then for you, there's a couple of ways that you engage. One is where you guys have you come in as a team, mm-hmm. and then you're now developing, I think, a mastermind type approach. Yeah, we have what's called the Transition Readiness Academy. So it has, we can do half day workshops and full day workshops for companies. In some cases, we've done it for franchise systems or corporations with, you know, distributor networks or whatever it might be. That's really introduction to some of the concepts that we talked about in the Value Accelerator. We also have mastermind groups, which I'm really excited about, actually, because I think, you know, a lot of people are familiar with kind of the Vistage model or, you know, I know there are a lot of other versions of that. What we thought would be useful for owners who really want to focus on this idea of transition readiness and value acceleration is to create what's essentially a 12-month program, although it could be extended to 24, depends on how frequently the group wants to meet. But we designed it as a 12-month program. It's pure owner work, right? So if an owner is looking to be in a supportive, peer-driven environment with other owners, not competitors, other owners and go through a program of 12 months that focuses on nothing 
but the things that we've talked about today, then this gives them the opportunity to do that. The advantage, I think, is we're not going to be able to go as deep as we can in the value accelerator, the big value accelerator, but we can create a kind of DIY environment in a sense. And the goal of that 12-month program is for people to come out of it with a clear transition readiness roadmap. You know what I think? What strikes me about this is, can you imagine if they knew this before they started their business? Yeah. And almost everybody says, there are two versions of that, right? I wish I'd started working on this from the beginning with the end in mind. And then there are those that I talk to, owners that I talk to have been through a transition and they'll say, boy, I really wish I'd known you before I did that. You know, I think people get so wrapped around the actual on exit and succession. And the reality is it's just good business. It's just good business. That's right. And when you think about that, you go, why is it not taught? Why is it not known? Why is it not, you know, and so, you know, so my eyes are clearly opened up on the whole process and hence why we're doing the podcast. And it's also why we're doing the deep dive. And so we've gone a fair amount of time. And I typically quiz you a lot toward the end, but I'm going to abbreviate it just a little bit. Okay. All right. Is there an influential book that you like? Let's get real or let's not play. Completely changed the way that I think about my relationship with business owners, both in the business development process and throughout what we do. Great book. Super. Add on page one of the local business journal, sharing your message. What would it say? It would probably say transition ready businesses are more valuable it would, in one way or another, speak to the owner around value creation and transition readiness. For you, over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you established in your company that's helped you the most? We move in the direction of our conversations. One of the most important things that I've learned in my entire life, it comes out of appreciative inquiry, which is the things that you talk about move you in a direction either toward what you want or away from what you want or need. So we always say we move in the direction of our conversations and we say it with our clients and we say it with ourselves. Advice to a new CEO that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time. Learn how to work with a board. One of the most important parts of your job will be governance and you got to understand how boards work. Over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to and why? Out of the hundreds of clients that we've dealt with, I can think of two or three that we should have said no to, which led us to improve our intake process. You know, it's really important to have a connection with the client. We always say connect before content. And it's really hard. We can't really help a client that can't make a good decision. I guess. And some people just don't want to act. In addition, we've just made some bad choices about who to work with. For one reason or another, I can't go into detail, but I can think of some situations there. Now, there are many things that I should have said no to as a CEO, mostly related to I could have delegated that, but in one way or another, I convinced myself that I could do it better and faster, which was a bad mistake. Well, Sean, this has been Awesome. And really looking forward to doing the deep dive series, which is coming up next. Me too. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bob.